This episode is brought to you by Facebook Gaming. Facebook Gaming is building the world's gaming community by helping game makers, developers, and publishers to build, grow, and monetize their games. They do this by providing research-based insights, in-depth case studies, as well as a wide variety of educational materials. A recent example of this is Games Marketing Insights for 2021, a report that has just been released and is available to download for free right now. Of course, Facebook Gaming also helps developers and publishers of all sizes to deploy powerful UA and monetization strategies through a range of innovative solutions designed for games marketers in every corner of the industry. Go to fb.gg forward slash DOF for in-depth educational materials, including playbooks, webinars, blogs, and reports, as well as great video content. Do you have the tools to turn your insights into action? Let's be honest, not all marketing activities are created equal. AppSlyer's analytics suite simplifies its complex data and gives you a unified view of campaign performance so you can make better, faster marketing choices at every stage of the customer journey. The goal is to create exceptional experiences that keep customers engaged. To succeed, you need to meet your customers where they are. AppSlyer's customer experience and engagement suite powered by a reliable deep linking engine lets you create personalized journeys that increase conversion and return on every experience. In addition, AppSlyer is going to keep your budget safe from mobile ad fraud. Bots and click farms aren't going to generate revenue for you. That's why you need a comprehensive fraud protection solution to make sure you're investing in the right channels and only measuring and paying for real actions. Are you ready to start making good choices? Great. Go to appslier.com and get yourself an attribution partner you deserve. I think what's what's become clearer, certainly in the last few years, as competition in the game industry has really stepped up, is that there's a fundamental difference between a great game and a great game business. You know, you could be super lucky. You, your game is an instant hit. It's resonating with users. But for when that's not the case, uh, or even when you just want to take your game growth to the next level, that's where we come in. So we've developed a really incredible platform that's designed to make you as powerful and as capable as possible in growing your game, whether that's growing your game revenue or growing your user base. That was Melissa Zeloff, VP of Marketing at IronSource. Uh, get political, man. Uh, welcome, everybody, to Twig 155. Um, <laughs> so I was in Germany just recently. I, I want to give this. I just asked the, yeah, the guys, can I talk about the COVID passport? So this is not a non-political thing. Uh, I was in the uh, I was in Berlin just a couple of weeks ago, and um, they have a COVID passport. Like we in, in Finland, Finland is like one of the worst areas for COVID in Europe, in European Union. But we have this like uh, Lassie's Fair uh, attitude, like masks off. <laughs> nothing going on like like you know just take it uh but germany is is very you know very um conservative and very sort of a uh smart about this and they've implemented of course covid passport i don't know how it is in us i've heard you know us is crazy place yeah i've just heard like everybody's against covid and post covid like you politicize but they have a covid passport I'm like okay well i got vaccine so basically how the covid passport works in germany and this is what i want to say it was just like so ludicrous like you have to have a photo of uh <laughs> of uh of like um um a receipt that you have gotten uh um a shot of um of one of the other vaccines or that you have had uh covid before and they check it everywhere like it's it's very important when you go to the restaurant you're wearing a mask you show the uh the picture of this covid passport and they let you in but at no place do they check that you are actually the person that got the uh, the vaccine. They only check that a per, uh, somebody has gotten the vaccine, and it was just so weird. I, I can't get over it. And uh, I know we've been talking a little bit of a shade about Germany, and I've definitely uh, been a little bit facetious on, on the Deconstructive Fun Slack channel uh, about Berlin. But these type of things are just weird. Like like people just just do it, and you can take anybody's photos. And I've seen other people take photos of of others' COVID passports and just show it and and enter places, and it's just confusing. So. Anyway, at least where where I am, it's you show the QR code and uh -huh. you give them your driver's license. Exactly. Right? Hey, hey, Germany, uh, check yeah. out what Canada is doing. Like that's 
how COVID passports should work. But in Germany, you would but just keep in mind, show. like in Canada too, we every province yeah. right, has its own system for uh -huh. doing it. So that's just how we're doing it in Ontario. Yeah. Um, and at least so far, it seems like Ontario is doing pretty well. Like yeah. We just have not had the, the fourth. Quarter. But think about if nobody would ask you your your IDs, they'd be like, okay, that looks like it's it's valid. So just come on in. Yeah. Yeah. It makes. Uh, and then again, also work. some people don't have photo yeah. ID, right? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Why Ari. don't they have photo ID? Well, it's just you might be young. You don't have a driver's license yet, right? Like you're 15 going out to oh. a restaurant. What do you do? Yeah. yeah. I was in New York um, this weekend. They have a they have an app, right, where you upload your uh, you a picture of your COVID pass. Right? I think they actually connected they connect it to like a New York hospital system database mm -hmm. or something. And so you you you, you validate your ID identity, and then they'll connect to your COVID vaccine status, and you show the app. Um, if you don't have that, you have to show your vaccine card and ID everywhere everywhere you go. Which, like, mm -hmm. to be fair, like once you do that, then you can roam around inside like no mask on. It was pretty nice but and they don't have anything like that in texas texas you just walk around and do whatever you want <laughs> no vaccine no problem yeah. but uh new york system was fine but they did have an app but the app does you can't use it if you're not if you if you didn't get vaccinated in new york and so like the app's only applicable to to new york residents derek you gotta step back from your mic a bit yeah you're getting uh too loud like here uh, yeah. here, so, here, here. uh yeah san francisco yeah. is just like new york <laughs> just like New York. <laughs> it's so, Dumb. so should we just stop talking about COVID bullshit and yeah, enough just, about COVID? Let's just, let's just jump in into. Well, I, I actually have an update. Like, I never give an update. Yeah. If you notice, for like the last like a hundred twigs, you... always Eric is giving an update, but I've never given an update. <laughs> so you did something. Done... You, you did something outside work. What is this? <laughs> right. Like, I have, like all I've done is like fixed my house and like maybe gone around the block. Right. Uh huh. Um, but no, like I actually went out to a wedding. Right, like actually saw real people, and it was incredibly weird. And I feel like I've broken as a person now, and actually prefer to just be a homebody. Like I've, like I don't even know how I'm going <laughs> to handle GDC this year, and actually seeing people. I'm like, maybe I'll just hang out in the hotel room for a week. The <laughs> old from hotel while at GDC. <laughs> oh my God, you're yeah, you're a broken man. Um, I guess. I have to tell you an update because uh, we, we went to a big tournament in Anaheim this weekend and my son just crushed it. He got like an MVP of the, of the uh, sixth graders. <laughs> they, they just destroyed them. It was awesome. So 24 points in the uh, final game. So he's killing it. Also, Dune. Did anybody watch Dune yet? I haven't. Mm -hmm. I should, but I haven't. Nerd alert. Dude, another nerd alert, dude. This movie is awesome. I... I know for a fact that my son is going to hate it because it's really, really boring. But I love these epic adventure movies. That it's just awesome. Can't wait for the part two, which is coming in 2023 because I think it was green. It was greenlit by Warner and Legendary. But this is my jam. Um, yeah, old old man type stuff. Uh, the second update is BlizzCon 2020 two was canceled. Frankly, which seems a little early since we haven't got out of 2021 to be canceling stuff. Um, so I think there's like four reasons why this is happening. One, I don't think they need any more publicity, right? They want to stay out of the limelight, so they'll they'll take a pass on this. Um, it's also really, really expensive to run these things and not necessarily profitable for the studio, I would imagine. Um, and then the third thing is completely disrupts part of the development team, right? They have to like bifurcate the code and build stuff for BlizzCon and, and divert all these resources to it. So not good if their games are coming in hot. And uh, and the other one, the big one that I didn't know, but I, one, of, one of my buddies told me was that uh, the person that's in charge of BlizzCon was was J. Allen Brack's wife. <laughs> so now that J. Allen Brack has got shit canned, right? Uh, you know, I don't know if his wife wanted to be throwing parties, right? So and she doesn't work. I'm sure she doesn't work there anymore. So that's another one, inside baseball thing. So I'm not going to tell you what I think it means for Blizzard because that's my job, day job. But uh, but uh, if you want to know, just reach out. But <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and then the next update. Holy crap, dude. Dude, we are going... The world is coming to an end <laughs> at this point. So... 
FaZe Clan is going public at a billion dollar valuation. This is absolutely ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> they, you know, I know I'm a boomer and I know I didn't know what FaZe Clan was until I looked into it. So I, I, I know I'm out of touch, man. I, 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 I 100% admit that, right? Right. They've reached 350 million people, evidently, this fucking FaZe Clan thing, right? <laughs> They're like the ultimate influencer in esports thing, whatever. So I looked it up, right? Yeah, but so I was looked at their presentation, their investor presentation. And it was the biggest fabrication in in the world. It is like unbelievable, like what they are putting in these presentations. So they are basically claiming that they're monetizing their membership at forty two cents, right? These three hundred fifty million people, right? They their goal is to monetize at a level similar to the NBA and, and MLB, whatever, which is evidently does ninety one dollars per user or sixty six dollars for the NBA. Some ridiculous, meaningless comparison, okay? And and then they're also measuring their total addressable market as this absolutely massive amount, right? Which you know may or may not be true. But esports has been dying for a while now because of COVID and because I don't know, esports is just kind of not not doing what it should be doing, right? But the worst of it all was that they put these forecasts in that were absolutely ridiculous and meaningless, right? That the growth assumptions is that they're going to go from. $50 million of a, a revenue this year in 2021 estimated to 650 in 2025. And with, and, and the, primarily with merch, this is like a fucking merch company, you know, like consumer products and some other things. M&A was a category. Then they had emerging monetization areas as a category. Like, like that's a thing, right? And, and, and at the end of the day, in what world do we live in that a merch company is worth 20 times revenue? <laughs> it is complete abomination, right? This SPAC stuff, right, that's going on. So anyway, this is where this shit doesn't make any sense. And you look through these forecasts and you're like, there's nothing behind this. There's no, there's a complete lack of scrutiny, right, in, in terms of this. And and this this will not end well, right? This this company will not end well. There is no doubt in my mind that they will not hit their targets, Right. Full stop. I don't even know. They probably don't even hit the 50 million this year in the next two months. Who knows? But anyway, it's ridiculous. Hated it. Hated this stuff. Right. But uh, good short if you're uh, like small cap. <laughs> there you go. Well, okay. Well, <laughs> we got the low down from Mr. Kress. Um, I'm going to update a little stuff from, from last week. So we talked about Kickside versus Stillfront dispute. Uh, got a really good feedback from, from the Kickside side. You know, not mentioning any sources, but inviting anybody from Kickside, whether it's Lars, whether it's Andrew or or Alexi or whoever from Kickside to, to come and talk about it. But um, what they explained is that they did not acquire the whole of Kickside. That was an asset purchase. So they purchased their legacy games and live op teams mostly. Uh, and that's the studio in Canada. The founders did not remain with Kickside and continued with Kingdom Maker uh, that the kickside did not acquire and that was never part of Stillfront. Uh, so interesting piece, by the way, here is that they acquired the asset, not the founders. Anyways, uh, the earnout was based on specific targets that were not hit during this period. Uh, kickside Canada team is happy. Of course, they're Canadians. Uh, they had no issues with the Stillfront and are focusing on doing live ops and existing games and working on new game for mobile. And kickside does have a mobile games that are being operated successfully. Unlike Eric Kress was just talking that they only do Facebook games or something like that. Uh, again, uh, they just didn't hit their earnout targets and that's it. And as for the roll-up model, uh, not working well, kickside's not hitting earn earnout targets doesn't stop it from being a profitable studio and completely uh, unfounded. Uh, earnout dispute from sellers that were out of the organization the day after the sale out of 21 acquisitions, um, it's hardly a sign that the roll-ups, at least the way Kicksai, uh, at least the way Stillfront is doing them, is not working. Um, the uh, the source did not say, and I forgot to actually ask this. Uh, he did not mention that that part of the dispute where they said that the earnouts were not met because Stillfront reduced the uh, the UA cost. Uh, so not sure whether what what's the uh, What's the detail on that? But regarding the roll-up strategy, I think the conversation, like if you just exclude um, the hyperbolic feedback from from Crest, I think the uh, the more of a conversation that we're having on a high level is, is it the more effective or less effective approach than uh, the acquirers such as AppLove and Zynga and Playtika that are very focused on having central resources and much less focused on having founders stay at the company after acquisition. They seem to be just uh, focusing on 
on making the most out of those assets that they acquire. Uh, the good part about Stillfront is, of course, that the founders stay and, and they keep on growing their game. They keep the culture and, it, and the, uh, the asset doesn't evaporate uh, as soon as it's been acquired. Like Zynga has acquired, what, 35 companies before they acquired Graham. And before that, it's, you know, many of those acquisitions did work because all the founders and everybody left. So, so in that sense, Stillfront allows uh, a lot of stability for the company. Uh, but the, the the kind of like the end question here is like, what's the success rate of this aggregator roll-up model when the market is not growing? Uh, because this year, Stillfront's stock peaked at 120, uh, and it's currently down at 39.6. And that's a quite a hefty decline just inside one year, actually less than in a year. And we know that the big incentive of joining companies like Stillfront or EG7 or MTG is, of course, that you're part of this family that is getting richer because the stock price keeps increasing. And uh, I assume, I don't, don't remember the deals, but I assume that a big part of the deal is actually equity of, of, the, uh, of the whole corporation. But then again, like, we're more than happy to invite back people from, from Stillfront uh, to join the podcast to explain... Um, to us dummies about how the roll-up strategy works, what they've learned through the acquisition of, of these uh, 21 companies, and um, just have a, a non-hyperbolic conversation about this very interesting model uh, in the games industry. So, any any points? You know, I, 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 I'm not taking the bait, dude. I've already, <laughs> I've already talked about this so much, and a confirmation from almost everyone I talk to is that roll-up strategies like this are never gonna work, right? And the stock is showing that that is exactly what's happening. And if you look at the sensor tower data, they're down like 11% this year overall on revenue, according to sensor tower, they're down sequentially for the last two quarters. Their, their main products are getting, are, are, are not growing and they're not having any new products. And so the fundamental problem is organic growth. And if, until they can prove that they can grow organically across Zynga, Zynga as well, right? And Embracer, et cetera, they're all, they're gonna be host. So, um, sorry. Guys, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I got nothing else. All right. Uh, well, let's go to the uh, uh, second final piece of the moving news. On, I have moving here. on. So, <laughs> m moving on. Moving on. Yeah, I got no comments. I, I gave my uh, very uh, mellow and uh, m like middle row view of this. So, IronSource buys Israeli marketing software Bidalgo. Uh, there was no financial details disclosed, uh, but the Iron Source said that together with its current creative management solutions, Luna Labs, the acquisition will allow it to offer a wide spectrum of marketing-focused products, increasing the power and value of its platform for app marketers. Iron Source added that the acquisition will enable it to deepen Iron Source market presence across the entire app economy due to Bidalgo's customer base in apps beyond games, including leading social dating and e-commerce apps who use Bidalgo's technology to manage and optimize their marketing expenditure. I got nothing to add to this. Eric Sufert, what's your take on this? Uh, smart people at Bidalgo. Iron Source just executing like crazy. I think it was, you know, it's... The, the, this is just... You're, we could report on this every single week, right? I mean, it'll be like smallish Israeli ad tech firm acquired by X. Um, mm -hmm. so that's like the headline every week, I think, but I, it's smart. I mean, it makes sense. Bidalgo guys are great. The Bidalgo, the, the team at Bidalgo is great. Iron source, uh, executing like crazy, uh, very smart exec team. And so, um, yeah, it's just more of the, more of the same, but happy for them. And I think it's a smart move. Yeah. And what's not mentioned in the news that, um, iron sources CEO is one of the other uh, coolest dressed people I've, I've ever seen, uh, at every event, I'm just. I'm just jacking his swag. I'm just trying to look from the side. He has like, <laughs> I'm not going to go into detail. So that you get it. <laughs> but uh, not mentioned in the news, a little bit of an inside knowledge, but, <laughs> but a fact nevertheless. And a uh, final one, I always have to bring in a news from Finland. So here's the latest one. Uh, Next Games and Netflix. Uh, Next Games and Netflix launch a Stranger Things Puzzle Tales games. So Helsinki-based Next Games has announced and released Stranger Things Puzzle Tales an officially licensed free-to-play mobile game. It was developed in collaboration with Netflix and has been now released globally. So um, we've, we've talked about this game a little bit. So it's essentially a puzzle RPG like Empires and Puzzles, just with the Netflix uh, theme and setting. And, um, you know, we talked about how challenging it is, or I talked about how challenging it is to actually have the characters uh, for that type of game, because we know that, that you need a lot of different characters in Netflix. Netflix's Stranger Things is not actually the uh, the most character rich 
uh, world to to uh, to you know to take this from. And looking at the uh, the numbers that we see from Sensor Tower for for uh, Netflix for Stranger Things Puzzle Tales uh, in soft launch, they got up to one hundred eighty one thousand downloads. Uh, the revenue net revenue is like fifty five thousand, so that puts that all time revenue per download till now at thirty cents. Uh, and just breaking down between platforms, so we see a fifty three cent uh, revenue per download on iOS and twenty eight percent revenue per download on on Android. Now, I'm not going to even compare this to the numbers of Puzzle Combat or or um, or other titles in this genre because uh, it's self evident that they're much lower. So let's I think the important here thing here is just to follow up how how many organics do they really get as they as they go and and launch this game globally like how much does a stranger thing ip really give uh users to to mobile games because we know that netflix is pushing hard into the games business got ton of open positions in the um on their webpage for for gaming gaming business so Here's the uh, the rubber meeting the road, and and we we see a kind of like first mobile game from Netflix, first free to play mobile game, and and how how what's the pull on the market? So should we move on to the uh, to the articles? Sure. So the first article is about Amazon's new MMO, New World. Um, so Amazon Games, once a pretty questionable endeavor, has a hit. Uh, launched roughly a month ago, New World reached 600k to 700k CCU within the first week, which was nearly hitting CSGO CCU and actually passed Dota 2, Apex Legends, PUBG on Steam. It's remained within the top 10 on Twitch since its launch, uh, although it is dropping, so it's not likely to sustain in that range for the long term. Um, overall, like this success makes sense to me um, in retrospect. Amazon Games Unit has actually made up a lot of seasoned MMO teams. I think that's really who they acquired and who they, they recruited for. So it makes sense that they would execute on this and not something like Crucible, which was that PvEVP game um, that, that kind of crashed and burned. Um, Amazon should continue, I believe, to double down on these types of MMOs and leverage their Twitch synergies and Prime Gaming benefits where it makes sense. Right? These are long-sustaining services, and um, you can leverage your subscriptions and your Twitch to kind of continue to those services. But stay away from PvP um, until they really change the makeup of the talent, um, because I just believe that those skill sets are dramatically different. Um, MMOs are a great genre to operate as, as Amazon, so very highly retaining services, um, but in general, a very costly live model that is very much dependent on expansions and delivering that content at a regular cadence. Um, so like before we jump into conclusions here, it's important to know that like an MMO's success is not decided within the first four weeks. Uh, like World of Warcraft, these are heavily spiky models based on a content gains and ability to retain players between those peaks. This game has proven its reach with this launch, but now has to prove that it can sustain players. So really the stats to watch here are where Twitch views and Steam CCU numbers actually stabilize. Watch their decay function versus other MMOs at their launches. That can tell us a lot more about how successful this game can retain rather than just the peak size. So I think the real test is, you know, then afterwards, what happens when they launch an expansion and when seasons come out, can they spike up engagement as high as they can before, as high as they did at launch. That tells me whether or not this game is gonna be successful. Um, and really all I would say is I hope they've really invested in a ton of live, live content content development tools and they can continually update this game. Uh, I don't know what engine they're on, um, so I can't really comment on, on how positioned they are there. Um, so it is a bit early, um, even a month out, to call this thing successful. Yeah, but the real news story here is actually about macroeconomics. And note, I have not played this game. I sadly do not have time with <laughs> a baby girl running around the, the house. So uh, this is just me piecing together articles from Reddit, Player Auction, etc. Um, so it was, New World is grabbing headlines. Go ahead. Sorry, it's Lumberyard, right? The engine. It must be. One I assume so, yeah. 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 The, the, the Amazon Crisis engine. Is that true, Chris? 
What's that? Sorry. The lumberyard is based on the crisis engine, or what? What's lumberyard based? On? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah okay. It's evidently an abomination, and it has a Twitch yeah. integration. <laughs> so Chris might know more about how um, scalable lumberyard is for for live <laughs> services, um, but that that's really you what know, they're going to be tested on. Can they deliver content quickly with lumberyard? Right. Anyways, yeah, lumberyard is not a particularly good engine. Crytek was a terrible engine way back when. Yeah. And I don't think it's improved all that much, but it made a it made a very pretty game. I mean, I'm not suggesting it's not visually pretty. It's just, but anyway, continue. Yeah. Um, but anyways, New World's actually grabbing headlines, um, not just because of that, but it's because the game is suffering from opposite of what you'd expect from a typical MMO. Most MMOs have inflation problems. Designers add new sources of currency over time, and then players get an abundance of that currency that they don't know what to do with. So designers are forced to skyrocket costs on finite assets. Uh, things like game items or introduce new currency or create awkward sinks in order to pull some of that currency out of the system and ensure that rewards are valuable. But in New World's case, it's actually the opposite. At launch, they came out with very strict balancing of sources and very effective infinite sinks. Weapon repairs, taxes, maintenance, each causing players to feel a sinking sand feeling of a deflating economy. A player auction is reporting that currency is becoming more valuable than items themselves, forcing prices to drop and disincentivizing things like conflict uh, in PvP because the additional territory gained territory gained would actually increase a company's tax overhead. Thus disincentivizing things even like crafting for profit, since the profits are actually negligible. I think the takeaway here is just how on knife's edge some of these MMO economies can be even with the seasoned team that has built multiple MMOs in the past, right? For games built on NFT and blockchain, which obviously we're gonna be talking about today as well, this just adds that additional risk, right? Like MMOs only have to handle what happens with active players. But when you add capped resources and you add public markets filled with inactive players that are essentially hoarders, that balancing act actually gets a lot harder. So regardless, I'll be tracking New World and its engagement over the next few weeks to see if this thing can actually sustain. And I think it's overall, you know, a great news for Amazon. Uh, but again, MMO's success are not defined within the first few weeks. So let's keep watching. Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I played the game up to level 30 and then just bombed out. It's 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 really pretty, but it's really boring, generally, in my opinion, anyway. Um, I, I, there's two primary problems, right? They, it's engaging, engaging systems and then, or an engaging story or world, right? So something like Final Fantasy kind of has both. World of Warcraft definitely has both, but Final Fantasy is like more of the story and the, the, the epic encounters, et cetera, et cetera. This really doesn't have any of that. So I, I don't think this thing is going to last very long, to be honest. I, what, I think I said this is the last time. I think what, what this will do is anybody that loves like PV, oh my God, realm versus realm stuff, like the, the, didn't I say this the last no. time? The old game, um, Dark Age of Camelot. Like those, that crowd that fucking played that game forever, right? I could totally see a niche group playing this game forever and ever and ever, right? But it's not, it's not a mass market MMO, if there's such a thing. <laughs> anyway, all right, moving on. All right, so anybody else? No, I, just, I, I, so the, okay. I mean, we talked about this when we talked about my NFT piece about Ultima Online, but like. Because I talked about the problem, you know, I played Ultima Online as like just a, such a fanatical, uh, <laughs> just 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 power player, and uh, you know, I saw all the ways that they had to deal with um, game inflation. I mean, they introduced like so you had these these die tubs where you could dye your robe, uh, and they they you know there was you know it's kind of normal spectrum of colors, and then they released one that was like pure like dark deep black, right? And that was like and it, you had to you know. People started, and they released like twenty of them or whatever, and in, into the into the each server, and so you had to pay. Like they ended up like the market for that ended up being like a million gold, right? And then like castles, like what one thing, smart thing that they did was like castles were so big, the footprint of placing a castle was so big. There's really only like three places in the whole map you could place one, and so like that, it just became a way for the people that had the most money in the game to just sort of like show off, right? It was it was mostly just for optics like i've got so much money i'm gonna buy a castle right and then and they just bid it they, they bid these prices up to like an un, unnecessarily high levels because they want to show off how much money they had it wasn't about utility it was about just showing off like i i think and if you think about that 
that type of dynamic. That's perfect for NFTs. That's exactly what NFTs are right now. It's people showing off how much ETH they have and thinking they're, they're actually diversifying. They're diversifying their holdings because they're buying NFTs with ETH. So they're actually protected against a market crash, not realizing that they're actually bidding up within this very tiny little sliver of, of society, right, of people that, that care about these or want to buy them, right? And it's very interesting to think about that's exactly how the rare art world works. It's hedge funds billionaires bidding these prices up because they just want to show off how much money they have. There's no... There's no utility to rare art or fine art. It's just something you you know, you put in storage, right? Um, but uh, but they just it's the idea is like I the, the the value of it is in buying it and showing off how much money you have. And like I think that 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 ends up becoming like a real issue for these MMOs. Um, and you know whether they can deal with it or not, I don't know who, who the team is there. But uh, it, I I would say that the, the I, I saw a new world. Uh, I discovered it because it, I I watched a lot of gaming uh, you know streaming on Facebook. And that's how I discovered New World. It looks awesome, uh, but I hadn't heard a thing about it before. I guess it was released. And um, I just wonder if, like, you know, everyone knows these are mass market games. If you get 100,000 MAU, that's great. But, um, you know, I wonder, you know, how, how, how does that affect the economics of a game like that if it's only PC, right? Because I, I think they don't have any plans to release on any other platform. No, I can't imagine. I think the the majority of their player base will be PC, and if if it's the Dark Age of Camelot crowd that is really like their core audience, it's going to be playing between every expansion, then it's still going to be dominated by, P by PC. I still, still think they can get an incremental gain by going on on console, um, but then you just have to look at the operating costs. Like it already is quite expensive to produce each one of those expansions, so they'd have to look at the ROI on that. Yeah, but uh, right now it's exclusive. Well, I mean, the, the control. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's not available on any other platform. Yeah. The, no. Yep. Yeah. The control. The the controls are actually much easier on this game for console than they are for like Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy. I don't even know how that makes sense on console, but um. Anyway, we'll we'll, we'll see. All right. Next one. Uh, Snap falls as much as twenty three percent after a blow to its Q three earnings from the Apple privacy changes and su supply chain disruption. So. You know, my, my clients are like, well, how did this happen, right? Didn't we just talk about this with Zynga three months ago? Why is it now that people are starting to realize that a lot of these fucking advertisers are totally fucked, right? Anyway, so uh, the company basically cited the new app tracking rules from Apple, supply chain, labor shortages, whatever, all this nonsense, right? Shares of Facebook and Google also declined as a result because they're the only three companies that are actually playing by the rules right now, as we all know. Um, so they missed their lower end of their guidance, which is very, very bad in Wall Street world. Um, and uh, and they basically said they they anticipated some business disruption from Apple, but it was it was at a bigger scale than they expected, which seems unlikely. Um, I don't understand. Anyway, so I guess my whole thing on this is like the impact of IDFA. Um, has only really impacted people that are not cheating, right? So, so the ones that are like uh, actually abiding by the privacy rules that Apple has set forward and not doing fingerprinting or IP tracking and all that other stuff. And what's ironic about this whole thing is that like this is huge canaries in a coal mine right now, right? It's like the biggest companies, Facebook, and Google doesn't give a shit, but but Facebook and 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 Google to some degree, but then also now Snap are basically saying that they're getting impacted by this, right? And so what does that mean for like Unity app loving and Iron Source? And, and that means that like when they come after them and stop this IP tracking shit, they're the ones that are going to get screwed, right? Ultimately. So I don't know why <laughs> app loving stock is still like an all-time high right now. It's like, it is nuts to me. Now, I don't cover Snap, but I think the assumption is that Snap was 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 cheating with the rest of them, right? Um but uh, but I guess not. I guess they were abiding by the rules, and I don't think anybody really. I don't, I don't know why no people didn't figure that one out. Uh, and, and Eric obviously will have more of it. But I, I just think there is a day of reckoning coming for these guys. Apple kind of has to act and and maintain the integrity of their privacy claims that they've been telling consumers for the last year. And it, the only way they can do that is by blocking IPs right off on the phone. Um, I think, and so I think that's likely going to happen. And then we'll see how all these other guys react. What do you think, dude? 
Yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, this is what I've been saying for a year. So it's mm-hmm. nice to be vindicated this quarter because there's a, it was a, it took a while. Like I mean, I've been talking about it for a year, and it went into effect in April, and I was like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. It's being slow rolled, and then finally it, it hit. You know, a majority of devices. I'm like, okay, wait, 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 because that was really in Q3. It wasn't. It it, it was like it it was the last two weeks of Q2, and people are saying nothing happened. It, it it got rolled out in April. Nothing happened in Q2, and 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 I'm like. Guys, it, it wasn't on, you know, anywhere near even like a plurality of devices. Wait, wait, wait. And it, it, I, was, I kept saying it's going to be Q3. It's going to be Q3. I mean, I, it was, I'm, I'm, I was very happy with earnings this last week because I had short <laughs> positions on all these companies. Uh, and, and you know, it. so th- there's a couple of things I would point out specifically about, about Snap. Also, I want to point out, Chris, you did call this Y2K. You've, you called it Y2K a number no, of times. No. Okay, okay. <laughs> Hold on a minute. Now... You're I, you're absolutely right that I did say that that you are taking advantage of of your consulting practices by by screaming this at, at as loud as you can and nothing was going to happen just like Y2K but I was I was joking that was a joke <laughs> I totally believed you the whole time it <laughs> was so frustrating no 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 no, no, no. I think no, what was, there's a point that's the big here. yeah that's the biggest cop out I was joking. No, no, no. you didn't you didn't Stop. get that I was joking I, I use that on my wife all the time you can't use it on me. Um, okay. No, no, no. My, my, I've been saying that I've been sorry. Just, just to be clear, I've been saying this shit for for a year now since I started talking to you because you you make sense, right? But nothing happened. It felt like absolutely nothing happened until Zynga finally like well, yeah, capitulated, right? Well, Zing, but so, Zing, all Zynga did was say, "Hey, we think this is going to hurt us next quarter." Like, so they didn't even they they hadn't even. Uh, they hadn't even sort of like exposed oh, right, right. any pain. All they had to do was say, "We think this could hurt us next quarter," um, and it was like, boom, drop twenty percent. But let me, okay, let me talk. Yeah, about- well, also because they because they said it would have no impact. See, the exactly. problem is that both Snap and Zynga yeah. said this is going to have no impact in our business. It's a short term problem, and that's just not true. I mean, it was yeah. never true, and it's, that, it's not true. It's absurd. And, and this is an ongoing problem. And so I'll let you continue because you okay. you know what you're talking. Okay, about. So <laughs> let me talk about Snap. I'll talk about Snap. So Snap did a very poor job of setting expectations, right? So, so since this was announced, I mean, Evan Spiegel was saying, "No, no, no, this is good. You know, we Apple should be doing this. This is great for user privacy. We're we're totally behind them on this." And they've been saying, "We don't think it's going to affect us that much. It's it's going to be pretty minimal impact. We'll be able to figure it out." And and that was even like last quarter they were saying that, right? And so they just did a very poor job of setting expectations. Um, one thing that you know, I, I think was a distraction is, is they said, look, you know, we believed in SK ad network from the very beginning. And then all oh, we rolled it out and it turned out that it, it, it just wasn't uh, it wasn't a workable, viable solution. That's not true. What snap had tried to get around SK ad network by implementing uh, an identity system very similar to the, the CAID early on, right? That was reported upon very early on by the financial times. Um, and I guess they abandoned that, but that, that means they knew from the very beginning that Snap was insufficient. They, they never really believed in Snap. They tried to build a kind of workaround, you know, sort of backdoor type system, and, and it, they, they, they couldn't do it for whatever reason, or maybe they got caught, or maybe they had a discussion with Apple and realized like that wasn't um, compliant um, and that they might be punished. But, but I don't buy this argument that they went all in on SK Ad Network and, and feel like, um, you know, that, that, that that they got betrayed by Apple. I mean, that was kind of the tone of the call um, that they got sold on the effectiveness of SK network by Apple. And only when they built this whole system around it, did they realize how insufficient it was. I don't buy that. I think that, you know, it was reported on by the financial times that they were trying to build a workaround from the very earliest days. So they always knew that SK network wasn't going to perform well, which makes their comments the last few quarters. So unbelievable because if they knew that, I mean, I don't know why they didn't want to just take the pain up front and take their medicine. Um, so another thing I'll note is that Snap blamed the supply chain crunch for at least part of their poor performance, which I also don't buy into because that was Q3. <laughs> yes, it's going to be very acute in Q4, but the, the, the supply chain impact was was almost non-existent, I think, in Q3. Certainly on, on ad spend, right? And it's certainly for mobile apps. What difference does it make to mobile app developers? Um, for e-com, yes, but that's not going to really materialize until this quarter. Uh, so, okay, so Snap dropped 25%. It was a disaster. Uh, Facebook had earnings two days ago, and the stock was down 5% the next day for the same exact reason. Now, that was a little different, right, because Facebook's dealing with a lot of things right now. I think all that Facebook papers, uh, Haugen whistleblower stuff helped Facebook this quarter because they got to dedicate almost the entirety of the call to that. They didn't actually have to draw as much attention to how badly 
ATT impacted them, which if you go back and you look at the call notes, like the first thing Mark Zuckerberg talks about is, yes, ATT was had a very significant negative impact on our business. Then Dave Wiener says the same thing. Susan Lee says the same thing. Cheryl says the same thing. And then the rest of the call was about Haugen, right? You have two totally different narratives. You have the media narrative, which is like Facebook's going down because of the whistleblower, but advertisers don't care about that. And you have the advertiser narrative, which is like ATT is crushing us. What are you going to do to fix it? And that, you know, got much less airtime because it's just, a, I guess it's more sensational to talk about the whistleblower stuff. Anyway, their stock was up kind of after hours after earnings because, you know, they're doing a $50 billion buyback, right? I mean, that's a tactic to prevent their stock from declining a lot. Um, but the next day it was down 5%, right? So keep in mind, dropped 5% the day after earnings this quarter. It dropped 5% last quarter after earnings, and it also dropped 7% when Snap did earnings. So if the cumulative impact is, is, has been pretty extreme on Facebook from all this. They were at 380 going into earnings last quarter. Now they're at like 312, uh, I think, today. So they've actually dropped quite a bit. It's not like that they have, you know, it's not like the market sized the impact and said, okay, on Snap, it's 25%. On Facebook, it's 5%. I think it's just Facebook owned up to it last quarter. Um, I think, you know, and, and they got punished when Snap got punished. And so there's just a cumulative impact here. So I, I blame the precipitous drop on Snap stock on Snap's inability to manage investor expectations around ATT and not on any sort of disproportionate impact on the company systems relative to Facebook's, especially considering that Snap has a higher proportion of brand spend than Facebook does. So actually, this should impact them less. Um, and I've written about Snap and Facebook earnings this week on Mobile Dev Memo. So if you want to hear more detail about that, um, you know, I've, but, I, I wrote okay, two articles Eric, about it. Eric, I have one question, week. though. Yeah. What, what, why wouldn't they have done fingerprinting like everyone else? Like, they can't. Why would Snap just... Okay, so here's, 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 here's the difference. First of all, I don't think Apple cares about fingerprinting. I don't think they care. I think I think this whole thing was designed to hurt Facebook. And if that was the case, then they don't care about fingerprinting. They they they, they put it in the policy because that just makes it seem well rounded. But I don't think they care about fingerprinting for attribution because all that really does is allow you to attribution. So, but let's say that they do care, and they they will punt they will punt police fingerprinting at some point. They the the the, the big platforms, the O and O platforms, the, the 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 platforms that sell ads that they display in their own apps. If they were doing fingerprinting. Apple could punish them and block updates to their apps. If Facebook was doing fingerprinting, Apple could say, you know what? You're doing fingerprinting. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to block updates to the Facebook app. And until you strip out um, all the data that you're trying to access on the device from your app, then you won't be able to update your app anymore. And they could do the same to Snap because they're selling owned and operated inventory. They're selling inventory within their own apps. And so they have to do the fingerprinting. I, see, I, see. I got it. I got it. But if how do they punish some middleman broker ad network. They'd have to punish the app developer that has their SDK in it. Uh, and you'd have gotcha. to do that for every app developer yeah. that has those SDKs. You'd be punishing the app developers. Well, they didn't necessarily do anything wrong. It's the middlemen. And so I think they, and that would be like, that would be a very like, you know, manually intensive process. It'd be messy. It wouldn't be precise. I think the way that they're going to police fingerprinting when they do it is just by applying private relay to in-app traffic and saying, you know what? No IPs for you. The IP, you know, IP Nazi, like the soup Nazi. No IP for you. And, and that's a much cleaner, more precise way of policing it anyway. And so it's like, why take this middle ground approach versus just doing it all in one whack with applying private relay to, to in-app traffic? Got it. Makes sense. All right. Next. All right. Let's talk. NFT. Let's end up with NFTs. So, um, so this is uh, already an old article, but it's not that really. It's a couple of weeks old. So Ethan Levi from Network wrote five reasons why he became bullish on blockchain, ga blockchain gaming on Deconstructor of Fun, pot, uh, not podcast, blog. So you can go and read it or just listen to it. So basically, number one point is uh, the reason he, why he's so bullish is that it helps to fight power creep with scarcity. So for many of the top grossing game, uh, live op games, power creep is a necessary crutch. Uh, you know, developers need to make the, this month's offer appealing to players who spun gotcha last month. So need to make t today's limit offer more appealing than yesterday's. And through that, there's the power creep. And he believes that the true provable scarcity can eliminate the need for this power creep. Number two is fighting purchase regret with ownership. So as you own your asset and you have the ability to sell the asset to other players when you don't want to have those anymore, you will feel very different about every dollar that you've spent in the game. Number three is catering to different player types. So, you know, mostly in games we have power or cosmetics and 
uh, in the world of ownership where players can sell their assets to other players. Uh, developers or designers can design for many different player types to have fulfilling decade-long journeys. Uh, number four point that Ethan uh, raised up is fighting ex existential dread. And that is basically him always asking himself a question, why the hell am I playing this game again? Like, why am I spending so much time on AFK and not hanging out with my kids? Well, you know, you don't have to invest so much money and time uh, because just knowing that you can cash out when you're done will eliminate that existential, existential dread. So you can invest happily your time with it. And when you say you're done, you can kind of cash out and it doesn't feel like a total waste. And final one is the creating a community of ownership. So in order to accomplish some business goals, you, you change how the part of the game works in the current free-to-play games. Uh, but example, in the future, uh, this, you know, a community can vote for different designs and the event, as well as the event rewards, everything is chosen by, by the community as the events go live. Sounds like a, like a balancing nightmare, but, uh, but apparently blockchain gaming uh, helps with, with that. So... My takeaway from Ethan's article is like Ethan is really into blockchain gaming and we're actually uh, planning uh, a podcast with Ethan uh, as soon as as soon as I get to um, write my stupid questions so that he can explain this Neanderthal what the hell is going on. Uh, and he's he's not only just a fan of blockchain gaming, he's actually building a blockchain game. So my questions regarding this is like, why do we need a blockchain to vote for rewards? So, so why do we need blockchain to create this community of ownership? And do does it really solve the purchase regret if if say you drop ten thousand dollars on an nft or like i don't know what people are like in the um on, on one of those soccer cards or, or basketball cards like you drop ten thousand and say the game kind of drops off the cliff you know the popularity is just not there or something new came out like who are you going to sell that for ten thousand and the same kind of applies to the existential dread you know, the assets that you've earned in the game can be worthless when, when it's time to sell. Um, and on the other hand, if you have a very high value asset, does that really drive the retention or are you just holding on to it like a, like a stock that you, you kind of forgot in your portfolio? So, you know, uh, it's, um, and, and finally like catering to different player types, like we do it now a lot, you know, there's players who pay there's players who don't pay and they play a lot and there's everything in the in between and in in blockchain it kind of feels like again i'm i've been playing these games uh, but it feels like when i talk to to people uh working on these games or playing these games it's like there's workers and there's owners you know there's there's the people who grind for these nfts and and then there's people who kind of uh, buy buy those for them from them or actually even just employ them to grind for them and you know it's 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 all, like sometimes you just ask the questions like who actually plays these because it feels like a, like a real life economy. So, you know, and, and when it comes to playing, that's that's really kind of my, my sticking point is like actually who plays these games because we see the numbers, we see the transaction values, but it's not like it's not like a new world. Like I know plenty of people who played New World who have a lot of things to say about it. I don't know anybody who plays these blockchain games is like, hey, we, I played this. It's such an amazing thing. I did this. I did that. That might be just my circle. Uh, most likely that's the case, but it just doesn't feel like it's so, so, uh, so big as, as quote unquote normal games. Um, and, you know, it's and then then there's the, the, the challenging part that we keep hearing about these. Either it's the investment numbers. They're just absurd. Like somebody raises six hundred and fifty and million or or some company talks about like how they have you know surpassed candy crush saga in like revenue or transaction values but that's not you know that's not the revenue that these games are generating uh it's it's coming from the blockchain currency that is used in the game uh so we kind of you know we kind of seldom hear about the player base we only hear about these impressive dollar values that are being calculated in uh in a some weird way so Honestly, I just want to understand more about about crypto game, and I'm I'm not against it in anyhow. I just I just feel very very confused and and conflicted when I when I read these news and when I hear about people talking about it. We got the crypto channel on DOF; it's popping. So there's a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of questions <laughs> answered. Whenever I ask the stupidest questions, I get a lot of answers. And and the interesting thing is like the uh, like one question gets so many answers. Like people kind of explain it to you. <laughs> so so it's it's a good part and. Um, yeah, it's, I'm out there. Like I'm constantly thinking: is, is this 
speculative bubble or is it something that that I should be investing more time to to understand it? So um, overall, like I would say, I'm in a position where I definitely believe in crypto long term, but I'm, I think Sufer has mentioned this. I'm kind of afraid that these uh, you know so called hit games of today will will kind of scorch the earth from the future. Uh, just by by the way they have been sold and and by the amount of money they're being raised and, and so forth. So, uh, Eric, all right, Mishka, go, Mishka, go ahead, Mister Forte. Uh, just just you're <laughs> conflating so many different things when you're talking about. This. I know, like that. It's <laughs> there's no clarity at all. So what he's talking about is the the future mm-hmm. of you know blockchain gaming, right? And like where it could evolve to and solve some of the key problems. That exists within free to play, right? Including participation, et cetera, et cetera, or you know, deprecation yeah. of value, et cetera, whatever. So anyway, we're far from that, right? Like what's going on right now is like we're in that speculative bubble type thing where I do think it's a lot of it's Ponzi schemes, as we've talked about before. So as it evolves, I think there that's what's what's really exciting. Um, and But, but uh, one thing on the audience side, like who actually plays these yeah. games. Um, on the Deconstructor Fund Slack. Super juiced. Some right. of is that a... Super, super used. No, it's, it's I can't juiced. really back these numbers. So no, it's it's a juice from Super Data Guy. Super Data Guy. It's a guy. Yeah, it's used. It's, I don't, it's, I don't, it's, I don't know this guy. I can't vet for this company. Do you know it? Yeah. It's a guy. He better be super juiced too. Oh, okay, super used. Okay, and he's really and he's super. So I guess that makes sense. All right. So, but anyways, anyways, the, the audience size, the way they calculate is monthly audience for top fifteen titles. Um, mobile is nine hundred and fourteen million. Yeah. Um, PC is four hundred two. Console one hundred seventy six. Blockchain three. Right. So if you just compare those peaks, nine hundred fourteen for mobile versus three for blockchain. I don't know how that's calculated. Maybe even that three includes just traders, right? Maybe that's not actual people playing. Um, but yeah, for the sum of top 15 blockchain MAU to be three is pretty low. We're still talking about a niche, but even the, though that niche obviously has outsized yeah. revenue per player. Um, but yeah, the, when, when you have that interview with um, Ethan, you've got to go into the, some of the, the heavier hitting stuff because I... I hear some of these talking points, but I don't really feel like anybody's actually gone into the depth of exactly how that's going to be valuable to mm-hmm. players. So you talked about like, hey, blockchain can already do this stuff. I think that's kind of the the, the mm-hmm. typical defense against this, where when we look, look at these things, there's obviously better technical implementations besides blockchain to do things like scarcity and do things like um, community voting, right? Like these things are solved. We don't need blockchain to do this. So there obviously is just value in it being blockchain that we are assuming that the mass market is eventually going to be able to value. Um, that this, that the fact that it's not in a, you know, big database centrally owned, that people will value the fact that it's just in a crypto wallet that's outside of the game. But the one part that I'm still confused on is um, power fighting power creep with scarcity. Um, I don't understand how scarcity solves power mm-hmm. creep because even from Ethan's own article, when he's talking about NBA top shots, he was talking about power creep issues yeah. in NBA top shots where they have to continually deliver more and more valuable assets to that ecosystem to keep those drops interesting. I don't understand how scarcity solves that. I think you still, if you're doing say a CCRPG on blockchain, I don't understand how you don't run into the issue of the next hero that you have to develop still has to be exciting versus all the other heroes that you've developed in the years prior. And then on top of that, like Eric, you talk about participation, expanding of, of like all of a sudden um, conversion to blockchain games is going to go from <laughs> you know one to five that we have now to 20 to 40. How? Like what, what part of this does that, right? Like, like it, when, when it's play to earn and people are earning the currency, are you just saying that the, if you now include people that are no, earning the, that's definitely the currency and then they're like spending that currency, that that contributors now to the game ecosystem, right? You don't have I don't just the whales, right? You have a, people that are, are contributing in different ways. I mean, again, my, 
But, but, but we have that right now. Again, like we, we have that. Like yeah, I have out of the, tons of people. The hope though is that you will find means and reasons for these people to in the games that we make either convert at a lower level, or uh, or just more broad groups of people will convert as opposed to the people you know the the differences with the free to play players where you know the top five percent represent so much of the revenue right. Um, I'm still pretty open-minded about this stuff, and um, obviously I was incorrect in, in in how this developed. But I still feel like that's not an, but that's not really like changing the economics of free to play. No, and you, that, you're that totally... still feels like a surface level. No, answer. no, you can call like me out all you want. I, 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 that's exactly what we're trying to uncover as we. Sorry, sorry to like call you out on the podcast, but like it's very, very yeah. new, and. The systems have not, but I guess maybe the way I think about it is that if I look at the World of Warcraft community about how many of those people actually participate in um, an exchange in the exchange system, it's far great, greater as a percentage of the population of any other type of game. And if you could bring that and make it part of the monetization and part of the design as, as a focal point, then maybe you get more participation, right? I, I, I but we, we don't know because we, none of these games have been designed yet. Mm-hmm. That's the whole problem. And that's what I was trying to say with Mishka is like what he's saying is what he hopes the future will be. We, there, there's a long way to go from here to there, mm-hmm. right? You know, like, and it may, it may never materialize. But I tell you, when mobile started in 2010, yep. like, we, we were yeah, thinking course, that we were only so, going to have 3% one conversion. Thing actually I, for... I think we were thinking far better than 3% conversion on some of our games. And and but that's just the way it ended up, right? So I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. Well, just... yeah, um, but also, I would say for for Suford, like the, there mm-hmm. is uh, a white paper now on Star Atlas, which is like this MMO AAA, actually trying to build an economy on blockchain. Um, it would actually be great for mobile dev memo if you could do a. Um, a follow-up article to your Ultima because it oh, seems I'll, like I'll, some I'll of their I, I think um, like to Adam's point, it's like economic principles this is, uh, a are request for the, in for line the podcast. It's like Ultima. if, Sorry, if, if you, if someone starts giving you an answer to a question that's like, well, blockchain democratizes access to the, shut, cut them, shut them off, shut the mic, cut the mic and say, no, answer my question. <laughs> how, how add, tell me how you design this into the game. How, how, and, and, and specifically how, like, tell me about, you know, an, an, an example of a game where the economy utilizes that thing that you're talking about. And, and and anytime someone starts talking about centralization, cut their mic. Because anytime you're talking, if you're talking about a game economy that 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 um, embeds these ideas, it's not centralized. The game controls it. Or if you are, if you if you do want to make the case that it's centralized, tell me how you achieve that. Right. There's mm-hmm. a whole mechanism outside of the game developer that controls all of the settings for the game. Because that would be almost impossible to pull off. Like in my, when I was doing the research for the Ultimate Online article, I, I discovered there was a game that tried to do that. Um, it was like kind of the very first MMORPG, and they tried to they tried to allow the players to basically define, um, you know, the game economy, and they, the player base could vote, and they could change like the power of an axe, or they could change, you know, and, and the game just like it was an interesting experiment, but it just you're never going to be able to run a game that way. It's got to be at some point kind of command driven. Wait, was that? What- Right. What so, was that? Was that MU? It, it, it I can't remember. <laughs> I don't remember off the top of my head, Pokemon, but it was like this really. Twitch it was a, it was um it was all text based. <laughs> Everybody it able was to like control the that's, that's, yeah, yeah, that's I think it was yeah MU all, all, yeah yeah no I know what yeah but it, but it, so right. the player base got to decide you know every aspect of the game balancing and it just you know turned into like a disaster but but that that that's what you'd have to if you really wanted to centralize the game uh, decentralize the game economy you'd have to do that. And anytime you talk about the game developer determining, hey, we need to nerf this axe because it's too powerful, well, and and you've got an NFT of the axe, it, and the next day the value of that drops because the game developer says, okay, we're going to cut the power in half. Um, and, and what do you? That's centralized, right? So I think like yeah. I would just love if if yeah, if there was like if you have a discussion, say, look, we're talking about specifics. Anytime you want to bring up any implementation of this, talk about specifically how you'd bring it into the game and introduce that into the game economy. And if you start going off on like democratize access and give empower people to invest in their own like cut the mic and say no 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 okay let's reel this back in and talk about but there's a hypothetical game how is this introduced in that way 
So this basically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I feel like Ethan Ethan is like getting halfway there I just I, don't feel like he's all the way there sorry to like call you out Ethan on this podcast but that's why I want to be dude, on the pod I, and have that I, conversation we've had some I talked some to Ethan a few weeks ago man that and, guy and is slack, a bad but I really dude. definitely <laughs> like praise me oh my god so alright I think this this episode is is in the books. Uh, for, we've learned now that I will have zero guests to talk about cryptos because I will be just cutting their mic and be like, "Stop! Explain it to cut me." Cut his mic. <laughs> cut his mic off. <laughs> I'll be, so uh, nobody from Axia, nobody from any of these companies are coming anymore because I'm just cutting the mic. Cut his mic. <laughs> but 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 if anybody wants to to join apart from Ethan. To, to have a like a real ass conversation about about blockchain gaming, I'm gonna ask you normal game development questions, and I'm gonna you know translate them into uh, normal game development. Uh, I will cut your mic if you go crazy if you start evangelizing <laughs> per per request. And I was just gonna focus on on the substance. So if you're up for that, uh, please do ping me and and we'll have a conversation, or I'll cut your mic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, thanks for everybody for hey, listening. Speaking of evangelizing, let's All go into the next to you. Apple. We appreciate yep. you guys. We love you guys. Keep sending the feedback, and we will, we will, you know, we will incorporate it into our learnings on this fine channel with this eloquent conversation that is not biased or self-serving. <laughs> Can I cut his mic? Please, no, that, no. We're cutting our own mics. <laughs> Mike's cut by. <laughs> yeah, let, let's cut. Let's cut the mic. Cut, let, let's. <laughs> mm.